0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And longtime listeners of this show know that I'm really interested in space and the technology we use to expand our understanding of the cosmos. As I record this... I am actually reading up on how the NASA Perseverance rover has deposited the Ingenuity copter on the surface of Mars, which is super exciting, but I'll have to do a follow-up episode about the Perseverance and Ingenuity later on after more has actually happened. So let's get back to what I'm talking about today. Oh, also, longtime listeners will know that I like to point out that space is always, always trying to kill you, From the lack of oxygen to the proliferation of radiation that could really mess us up to the long-term effects of microgravity, space is not where you want to spend any appreciable amount of time. There's just no atmosphere. You know what I'm saying? But dad jokes aside, I do really love learning about space, and moreover, learning about the tech we use to pursue that learning. To that end, I thought I would do an episode about the James Webb Space Telescope, and, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in this telescope because I actually have a tattoo that's part of NASA history connected to this telescope. I even got that whole thing shot on video while I was getting the tattoo. But I'll talk about that a little bit more toward the end of the episode. So... Let's get into this. Now, I'm not going to dive into all the instruments and all the technology behind the James Webb. Maybe I'll do a second episode where I go into that in more detail because it is incredibly technical. Um, It's it's phenomenal, the technology that's going into place to make this thing work. But I really wanted to give more of a a high-level look at what the James Webb Space Telescope is and what it is supposed to do. So first things first... Who was James Webb? Well, James E. Webb was the second person appointed as head of NASA. He served in that position from February 1961 until October 1968. That meant he led NASA during the crucial years that saw the agency launch the first American into orbit, that would be Alan Shepard in May 1961, to just before the launch of Apollo 7, which was the first Apollo mission to send an entire crew into orbit. The manned missions that NASA was pursuing understandably received a ton of attention and coverage, but Webb's goal was to balance the narrative of sending astronauts to orbit—you know, the the human achievement of going into space—and and later on going to the moon. He wanted to balance that with the need to actually use those missions to help expand our understanding of science. He felt that he needed to make certain that there were always scientific elements to those missions in order to link the space race to gaining knowledge, to expanding our understanding of the universe. Otherwise, sending people out into space could potentially get reductive. It could end up being a political statement. Because really, the United States was locking horns with the then Soviet Union in the space race. So he wanted to make sure that we were building a foundation to learn more, not just to you know show off. And I don't mean to reduce the achievements of the men and women who worked in the space industry at the time. Rather, this is all about perception and the political part of trying to get space programs together. The science is... Pretty darn cool, no matter how you look at it. Well, anyway, Webb himself wasn't a scientist, but his work really helped shape NASA and allowed the organization to benefit from the support that he was able to get politically in order to conduct scientific experiments that we otherwise would not be able to do. Webb was also able to form and leverage political relationships to make sure that the scientists and engineers back at NASA could realize their ambitions and goals. In fact, he was an expert at creating and maintaining those relationships. Like, that was that was his forte. And that's why NASA chose his name for the Space Telescope. All right, so let's get back to that story. Now, currently, the plan is to launch this spacecraft in October of this year. This year being 2021, in case you are listening to this at some point in the future and you're just going through the back catalog of Tech Stuff episodes. Now, that is after several delays and hiccups that have pushed back this project that has had about a 30-year history. In fact, longer if you want to be a little loosey-goosey with definitions of history. And by that, I mean, you could argue that the James Webb Space Telescope began its journey all the way back in September 1989. That was before its predecessor, the Hubble Space Telescope, had even launched. The Hubble would go up in 1990. But scientists were already talking about the next step, what would come after the Hubble. And this is one of the really cool things about science and technology. It's not enough to tackle really big challenges and then get them off the ground, so to speak. You already need to be thinking ahead about what is going to come next, which sounds pretty exhausting to me, but really cool all the same. Also, I can kind of identify Because I can't really reflect on the show I'm recording, I gotta already be thinking about the next show. Now granted, that's orders of magnitude less complicated than, I don't know, sending stuff into space. Anyway, in September 1989, NASA co-hosted a workshop that focused, pun intended, on the Next Generation Space Telescope. And the other co-host was the Space Telescope Science Institute, or STS. Little c-i. More than 100 experts in the fields of astronomy and engineering gathered to to start the process of outlining what the next generation of space telescopes should be able to do, uh, how would we be able to make it do those things, where would we need to actually position the telescope in order to do it, and so on. Initially, the group considered the possibility of designing a near-infrared telescope that would call the moon home or perhaps a very high Earth orbit. As it would turn out, we would go to a very specific high Earth orbit. Actually, it's not really so much an Earth orbit, a high solar orbit. Now, these discussions weren't resolved in a weekend or anything like that. Rather, they carried on for years as the experts debated the best course of action that would, in theory, return the best results, assuming mission success, of course, which is Never a guarantee when we're talking about launching stuff into space. If you look at the list of attempted space missions over the course of our relatively brief space history, you know, there's like a 50% success rate depending on which versions you're looking at. So it is not a sure thing. A committee with formal recommendations wouldn't present their conclusions until 1996, seven years after those initial meetings. And I think that, really helps illustrate that we're talking about really complicated technologies and missions here. And that that seven-year span from initial ideation to recommendation is a great guide on how the project has slowly taken shape since. Slowly, but methodically. Like, it has to be methodical because we're talking about plans where once we launch it, There's not a whole lot of opportunity to fix things if they go wrong. But in the meantime, while discussions were ongoing as to what type of telescope would follow the Hubble, we got the Hubble. While the James Webb Space Telescope first began to take shape during conversations that started in 1989, the Hubble's conception dates all the way back to the 1940s. Before we called it the Hubble, it had a different and rather mundane name. We called it the Large Space Telescope, which is descriptive, at least. But why would we bother with a space telescope in the first place? Well, here on Earth, we've got lots of telescopes. Some of them are purely optical telescopes uh, using lenses. They, They are all about capturing and bending light so that we can actually look at stuff that's really far away. We also have some that are radio telescopes. These are giant dishes that pick up faint radio signals which then we process and interpret to determine what might have made those radio waves way out in space stuff like stars quasars galaxies that kind of thing not necessarily you know aliens not necessarily like artificially created radio signals typically we're talking about actual celestial bodies that generate radio waves but these types of telescopes have a barrier and that barrier is earth's atmosphere While we depend upon that atmosphere because, you know, without it we would die, the atmosphere also absorbs, reflects, and otherwise blocks some stuff from getting through. This isn't all bad, mind you. Our atmosphere is part of the protective layer we have that keeps us from being bombarded with cosmic radiation. But it does mean that if you're making observations of deep space and you're fighting against those layers of atmosphere in order to do it, and you're going to run up against some fundamental limitations of how sharp an image you can produce. I mean, it's, all these things just happen, right? We, we've, it's like having a foggy lens. You, you're not able to see as far away. You're not able to see as clearly because we've got this atmosphere that's blurring the image. Putting a telescope out into space gets around that problem, right? I mean, the telescope can be outside the atmosphere and we get a clear view of the depths of space. A space telescope with the proper sensors can examine wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum that wouldn't be able to penetrate the Earth's atmosphere very effectively. I should also mention that the Hubble was not the first space telescope, but it did mark the most ambitious space telescope project at that time and for many decades. While a paper in 1946 was the first to propose putting a telescope in orbit, years before anyone had managed to even launch the simplest of satellites, the first working group to concentrate on this challenge didn't really happen until 1974. The U.S. Congress approved the project in 1977, and the following year, engineers began to build the primary mirror for the telescope. The purpose of the telescope's mirror is to focus incoming light from far distant astronomical objects onto really a secondary mirror, which then reflects that light into sensors. And now it's time to learn about optics. And I'm not using optics in that corporate-speak way of, this is gonna look bad for us and our shareholders are gonna be angry. I'm using optics the proper way. Gosh darn it, I hate corporate-speak. All right, so a refracting telescope is one that uses lenses made out of curved glass to collect and focus light so that we can get a good look at distant objects. A simple refracting telescope would have two lenses. You've got one, which is the at the large end of the telescope. This is the, the end that's pointing up toward the sky. That lens gathers light, and it bends that light, the incoming light, into a pathway that converges on a point that's inside the telescope. And rather than the light just traveling straight down the tube of the telescope, if there were no lens there, it would just go straight, Instead, it all gets focused onto that single focal point. At the other end of the telescope is a eyepiece, a second piece of curved glass, much smaller in size, and it acts like a magnifying lens with a focal point that hits that same spot inside the telescope. This lens effectively unbends the light so that we can see a representation of what is out there in space as if that stuff were much, much closer to us. For this to work, the lenses have to be very smooth, they have to be curved precisely, and they have to be the right distance apart from one another, otherwise the image won't be clear. Focusing a telescope is a matter of making very fine adjustments in the distance between the eyepiece and the other lens so that those focal points line up properly. And lenses work okay, but they have some pretty major drawbacks. One is that they get pretty heavy, especially the bigger they are. It's hard to make thin curved glass that can serve as a lens. And so as lenses get larger, they get thicker and they get heavier. And heavy is not a great feature when you're talking about shooting stuff up into space where every pound or kilogram really counts. You also can't, you know, collapse it. You can't make it go into a smaller form without crushing the glass and turning it into silica. So that's not... Not a great, great uh, solution. However, we can make really thin mirrors, curved mirrors, and mirrors bend light as well. Though now you're talking about reflecting light rather than refracting light. So a typical reflecting telescope looks kind of like a cylindrical drum that has an eyepiece near the top end of it. And at the base of the cylinder is a curved mirror that collects light that's coming into the telescope. It reflects that light up to a smaller mirror closer to the, the top of the telescope. And this smaller mirror is angled to reflect that light toward an eyepiece, which you look into. Um, and that may still have a magnifying lens part attached to it. This approach does mean, however, that that secondary mirror can block a little bit of the incoming light, so the image can be a little dim depending upon uh, the, the design of the reflecting telescope. Mirrors can weigh way less than lenses. You just need a very reflective surface, and so they are ideal for the purposes of a space telescope. Using curved mirrors around a detector allows the telescope to collect and then direct light that can then be captured by whatever that detector is, which is effectively acting like the eyepiece lens. It's it's typically like a camera or some other sensor. The Hubble's primary mirror measured 2.4 meters across, or 7.9 feet. The company making the mirror was the Perkin Elmer Corporation, and it took years to make this mirror. The cameras aboard the Hubble would be able to take images in the visible infrared and ultraviolet bands of light, but primarily was focused on, again, pun intended, the visible spectrum. In 1983, the Large Space Telescope officially became the Hubble Space Telescope, honoring Edwin Hubble. This astronomer who had passed away in 1953 had proven that what we once believed to be merely clouds of gas and dust out there in space were, in fact, other galaxies, and that they were moving away from our galaxy. So naming the telescope after him was a fitting tribute. Work continued on the Hubble. Tragedy would delay the planned launch of the space telescope when, on January 28th, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger broke apart a little more than a minute after it had launched, losing all hands aboard. NASA suspended the Space Shuttle program for more than a year in order to investigate the cause of the disaster and to take measures to prevent it from happening again, and since the Hubble was to be lifted into space inside a space shuttle, it meant that its own launch would have to be pushed back. Hubble would launch in 1990, as I mentioned earlier, a year after scientists were already talking about the next space telescope. A few months after deployment, scientists discovered that the Hubble's mirror had a slight imperfection in the curvature. And by slight, I'm talking about an error that measured just two microns, and a micron is 0.001 millimeters. So we're talking about an error that would be imperceptible to humans without the aid of special instruments to measure it. When we come back, I'll talk briefly about the mission that set out to adjust for this error, and then we'll move on to the James Webb Space Telescope. But first, let's take a quick break. All right, let's get back to that mistake in the Hubble. So that tiny mirror curvature error meant that the Hubble was unable to achieve the level of focus that scientists were hoping for. It could still take pictures, it's just they weren't quite as sharp as they were supposed to be. So it worked, just not as well as anticipated. The scientists and engineers who designed the Hubble had always intended it to be a technology that could be upgraded by sending astronauts up there to make adjustments. I mean, the Hubble was in, uh, still is, in Earth orbit. It's It was accessible for space shuttle missions. So that was always part of the plan. And so some of the early work in that regard of upgrades really revolved around finding ways to work around this tiny error in the mirror's curvature. The uh, first mission to really address this happened in late 1993 when astronauts installed two new instruments that could actually accept light from this imperfect mirror and in kind of a a post-processing approach, correct for that error. So in other words, they didn't fix the mirror because that would have been incredibly difficult. I'm not even sure how they would have managed it. So instead, they installed sensors or cameras with systems that could correct for that imperfection, which was a pretty neat approach. The Hubble played a central role in expanding our understanding of the universe. Scientists used it to study questions about the age and evolution of the universe itself. Hubble observations led to the confirmation that supermassive black holes do in fact exist at the centers of galaxies, Uh, Using the Hubble, scientists were able to figure out how far away other galaxies were from our own. The Hubble captured images of weird stars, some of them much more active and unstable than our own sun. We should be thankful for that because our sun mostly behaves itself. The Hubble looked at how pieces of a comet crashed into Jupiter, leaving behind large marks on the planet's surface. Scientists used the Hubble to study various moons in our solar system, leading to the discovery that Jupiter's moon Europa has oxygen in its atmosphere. The Hubble caught images of protostars and wide-angled views of the universe that showed more than 1,500 galaxies out there, all before the formal recommendation to NASA and the European Space Agency that they get to work on the next space telescope. But let's move on, even though we could talk a lot more about the Hubble. The Hubble is still in operation today, even though the last servicing mission was way back in 2009. The James Webb Space Telescope won't be able to get that kind of upkeep, and that's because it's going to occupy an orbit far away from Earth, far too far away for us to access easily for stuff like maintenance. And that means we need to make sure everything is right before we deploy it. Construction on the James Webb Space Telescope began in 2004, and it took seven years to make all the mirror segments. There are 18 in total. They're hexagonal mirror panels that fit together. And collectively, they serve as the primary mirror for the telescope. So the James Webb Space Telescope is going to orbit the second Lagrange point, a.k.a. L2. But those are just words, right? I mean, what does that actually mean? Well, getting stuff into space is hard, but getting stuff to stay where you need it to once you get it out in space is also hard. You can include stuff like thrusters to help a spacecraft maintain its relative position to some other point of reference, but thrusters require energy to operate. So you could use fuel, but fuel's heavy, has a limited resource. There are no refueling stations out there, so you can't top off the fuel tank once it runs low. So you could potentially use like an ion drive and power it some other way, such as with a radioactive decay or something, but it would be way easier if you could just plop something onto a specific point in space and it would just kind of stay there. And by specific point, I mean relative to something else, not just occupy a, a, a point in space space. And that's where it stays as the rest of the solar system continues to move away from it. So a smarty-pants mathematician named Joseph Louis Lagrange began to think about orbital paths and whether or not it might be possible to find points in which three different bodies could orbit each other but stay in the same positions relative to one another. So in other words, unlike, say, Earth and Mars. Let's use that as an example. We've got the sun. We've got Earth We've got Mars, three bodies. Earth and Mars both orbit the sun, but they both do so at different rates. So sometimes Earth and Mars are on the same side of the sun. Like they're both on, Let's if we're looking top down, let's imagine that both the Earth and Mars are on the right side of the sun. Mars is a little further out from Earth. Other times though, during those orbits, you get them on opposite sides of the sun. Maybe the Earth's on the right side, but Mars is on the left side. The sun's in between them. So they are not in the same position relative to each other throughout their orbits. In fact, it takes about two years for the two planets to get close to each other. That's why any planned missions to Mars that involve sending people up there usually also involve camping out on the planet for, you know, a couple of years in order to be able to return. However, a stable orbit would mean that the three bodies would remain in their same relative positions. So if Earth is one of the three and the sun is another, the third body would remain in the same relative position in its orbital path. So this would be like if the Earth and Mars were always lined up in their respective orbits around the sun. So Mars would always be behind Earth, further out. And that would mean Mars would have to be traveling faster through space, to keep pace, right? Because it's traveling greater distance. Its a, its orbit is larger. It's traveling further. It would have to go faster in order to maintain the same position relative to the Earth. That's not happening. However, through mathematics, Lagrange identified five points where this sort of orbit would be possible. So there are five points we've identified where something in that position would pretty much stay there relative to the Earth and the sun. And that's because these bodies would be exerting roughly equal gravitational forces on that third body out in space, and uh, the same amount of force as that third body was experiencing in the form of centripetal force. That's a lot of words. I know it sounds confusing, but imagine you've got a game of of tug-of-war going on, right? And both sides are of equal strength. And you've got a flag in the center of the tug-of-war rope, and both sides begin to pull, but they are equally matched. Neither is able to gain any ground on the other, so that flag just stays put. It's being pulled in both directions, but at equal strength, so it's not moving anywhere. That's kind of what a Lagrange point is like, only there's no physical rope holding anything because it's all about gravity and centripetal force. Lagrange Point 1 is between Earth and the sun, and it's at this point that we put solar observatories, like the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory Satellite, or SOHO. And as you would imagine, the point for these kinds of observation platforms is to have instruments dedicated to observing the sun and solar events. But it's not a great location to put something if you want to look at other stuff further out in the universe, because the amount of electromagnetic energy that's given off by the sun tends to drown out everything else. It's not a good place to put that kind of thing. Lagrange Point 2, however, is on the opposite side of Earth from the sun, and it's at a distance of 1.5 million kilometers, or around 1 million miles from Earth. The moon, by comparison, is 384,400 kilometers, or 238,900 miles from Earth. So the James Webb Space Telescope will be a far way from home, much further away than the moon is. L2 is the old stomping grounds for a few other instruments that we had previously placed there. One was the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe and I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. I probably should have looked up the pronunciation beforehand. I apologize for that. We'll call it WMAP, W-M-A-P. It taught us an enormous amount about the universe, largely by studying cosmic microwave background radiation or CMB radiation. That's the oldest light in the universe. It's the stuff that occurred shortly after the Big Bang, according to the Big Bang theory. And um, that is... It blows my mind to read up about that stuff. The second instrument that was previously at L2 was called Planck, and it uh, also studied CMB. The third was the Herschel Space Observatory, which was another infrared space telescope. That one operated until 2013, until it ran out of coolant. And all three of those instruments have long been deactivated and relocated to an orbit outside of L2, making it free for the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope orbits the Earth, but again, the James Webb Space Telescope orbits the Sun. Technically, it's also orbiting the L2 point itself. So if you think of the L2 point as orbiting the Sun, this is orbiting the L2 point, kind of like how the Moon orbits the Earth and Earth orbits the Sun, similar to that. So it will have a path that takes it around the orbit of L2 every six months or so. And it will stay in line with Earth during Earth's own orbit of the sun. So in other words, the James Webb Space Telescope is always going to be uh, right back behind where the Earth is in its orbit. The James Webb Telescope will occasionally need to make some slight adjustments in order to maintain its position and orientation. It turns out that those Lagrange points Some of them are stable, meaning if you put something there, it's just going to stay there. And some of them are kind of semi-stable, and they require minute adjustments in order to maintain position. The L2 is one of those. So once in a while, uh, in fact, like every 23 days or so, there'll have to be a very slight adjustment in order for the James Webb Space Telescope to maintain its position. It's not a lot of work to do it, but it is something that has to happen regularly or as you would imagine, you quickly start to fall out of step. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope has a large shield that will protect it from radiation coming from the sun. That shield is actually made up of a membrane. I'll talk about it a little bit more uh, in a second. And uh, it's also to protect it from radiation that's reflected off of bodies like the Earth and the Moon. It will effectively shade the mirror side of the telescope so that the telescope can gather distant light, Its orbit around L2 would also mean that the spacecraft is going to avoid shadows that are cast by Earth and the Moon, which would otherwise affect its view outward to the universe. Now, the type of light that the James Webb Space Telescope is really relying upon is primarily light in the infrared spectrum. We can feel infrared light. We can experience it as heat, but we can't see it unaided, right? It's outside the visible spectrum of light. The telescope will be seeking out infrared light from distant sources, which means trace amounts are going to be very faint, and that's why the telescope needs an effective heat shield, or else the heat from nearby sources, primarily the sun and surfaces that are reflecting light from the sun, that would be all the telescope would be able to pick up otherwise. In fact, the telescope is so sensitive that the electronics and computer that attach to it are on the shield side of the spacecraft because they generate heat. So rather than have them close to the telescope part and potentially corrupt results because the heat generated by the electronics is strong enough to to affect it, it's actually located on the other side of the heat shield, on the hot side, not on the cold side. Uh, On the S.H.I.E.L.D. side, facing the sun, the temperature on that surface will reach around 85 degrees Celsius, or 185 Fahrenheit. So if it got much warmer, it would be possible to actually boil water on that side of the spacecraft. But on the mirror side, the telescope side, things are way different. The temperature will be around minus 233 degrees Celsius, or minus 388 Fahrenheit. Now, you can see from this incredible difference in temperatures that it is of paramount importance to keep the telescope in the proper orientation, with the shield side facing the sun. That's one of the big reasons we're putting it at L2. After launch, it will take the telescope about 30 days to reach the L2 orbital point. But here's the thing. It will make most of that journey right away. It's that last bit that takes the longest, as the goal is to give the telescope a push just hard enough so that it arrives at its proper spot to enter its orbital path around L2. And I think of it kind of like curling, the sport where, you know, you slide weights down an iced surface, only, you know... In this case, we're talking about three dimensions, not two. And we're also talking about being in space, not on the ice. And also the weight in this case is a a telescope that's worth a few billion dollars. Also, there are no Canadians out there sweeping ice into or out of the pathway. But otherwise, it's exactly the same as curling. Another reason we're putting it in the L2 orbit is that because it will always be in the same position relative to Earth's orbit, which means we can communicate with that telescope relatively easily. Communications will carry out through radio signals, and one of three large antennas here on Earth will be in contact with the spacecraft at any given time. They are located in California, in the United States, Spain, and Australia, so that at any time of day there's the chance to be able to establish communications with the telescope. This collectively is called the Deep Space Network, which sounds like we've got a lot of antenna floating out there in space, but really it's more about having the infrastructure here on Earth that lets us monitor our instruments that are out in space, no matter what part of Earth is facing toward those instruments at any given time. Up to twice a day, the telescope will connect with Earth so that scientists can upload new instructions to the telescope and download the gathered data from the telescope. The plan, however, is to really upload a whole week's worth of commands all at once and then occasionally do updates. Like if you need to tweak things, you could send up another uplink later in the week. I think it's worthwhile to talk a bit about the planned launch for the telescope. It's to happen in French Guyana. That's the chosen launch point. It will be carried up into space on an Ariane 5 heavy lift launch vehicle. That name of vehicle might sound a little unfamiliar to my fellow Americans. It was to me. And it's a vehicle that's used by the European Space Agency, or ESA, the launch up to space will take about eight minutes of thrust to get up there. And a half hour after its launch, the telescope uh, will separate from its, uh, its little fairing with the remains of the launch vehicle and continue on its journey by itself. The telescope will be on its trajectory out toward L2, though there will be a, a couple of different trajectory correction maneuvers made along the way to ensure it reaches its destination properly. When we come back, I'll walk through the rest of the deployment process of the telescope, and we'll talk a little bit about the telescope itself and some of the things it's going to be looking for, and we'll also get to talk about my tattoo. And like I said, perhaps in a subsequent episode, I'll go into more detail about the telescope's uh, mechanical systems and instruments. But um, first, let's take a quick break. So before the break, I talked about the launch and the separation of the James Webb Space Telescope from the launch vehicle. And assuming all of that goes as planned, here's what should happen in the following minutes, hours, days, weeks, etc. At about 33 minutes into the mission, the spacecraft will deploy its solar array. This is an array of solar panels that will harvest energy from the sun and help power the telescope. Uh, So it's on uh, one side of this telescope. It's on the aft side, the rear side of the spacecraft, if you think of it that way. It's a little weird to call it aft because until the whole thing is deployed, you can't really tell what is fore and what is aft. It looks kind of like a rectangular spacecraft floating out in space. And one panel on one side of the rectangle folds down. And that's that's your panel of solar or rather your array of solar panels, I should say. Well, two hours after having launched, the spacecraft will release its high-gain antenna. This is a focused directional antenna designed to target radio signals with great precision. This is how we communicate with the James Webb Space Telescope. It's the antenna that receives and transmits information. And it's uh, the same sort of thing that we use for long-range wireless networks here on Earth it will actually fully deploy within that first day of the mission. It's released early on, but it takes a while for it to fully deploy. Twelve hours into the journey, and we'll get our first trajectory correction maneuvers. The spacecraft has small rocket engines on which it can fire thrusters and, and very quick, precise burns, and thus make course corrections. Another trajectory correction will happen a couple of days later as it continues its journey, Uh, The spacecraft's sun shield is in two very large panels or pallets, as NASA calls them. The shield that is opposite the solar array. So remember that that folds down first. Well, on the opposite side of the spacecraft is what is called the forward shield. And that will first deploy by folding down away from the telescope. So it's opposite where the solar panel arrays have folded down. And once deployed, the aft pallet will do the same. Now, this one's on the same side as the solar array. So it folds down and it ends up being parallel to the solar array, the the series of panels that are collecting light and powering the telescope. Then the telescope apparatus will extend outward from the base of the spacecraft. It, It kind of telescopes out, if you will. Uh, This part of the process is called tower deployment. So really it's just like, if you think of an old radio antenna where you would extend the antenna, that's effectively what's happening here. It's about creating a little more distance between the telescope itself and the solar shield so that there's not any heat transfer. Because again, this thing is incredibly sensitive to heat. Then the spacecraft will deploy a a solar membrane. It's kind of like foil. And by deploy, I mean it unrolls this foil so that it spreads across the aft and forward sunshield pallets and then connects to two extendable arms. Those extendable arms then extend, pulling that membrane further outward to form the solar shield. And I get that it can be a little hard to understand what I'm talking about here, But imagine it's kind of like stretching a blanket outward, only in this case, the blanket is meant to keep the heat off the telescope rather than trap heat in. Eleven days into the mission, the telescope will start its cryo cooler to start to, to cool the telescope components down to operating temperature, and then the telescope will deploy its secondary mirror. So let's talk about that for a second. Imagine a satellite dish, like the kind we would have here on earth for, you know, cable or whatever. Now normally, you would have the dish and then suspended above and the the dish, like at the center of the dish and above it, you would have an antenna. It'd be held there and the idea being that this parabola of the dish is reflecting radio signals up to that antenna so that you get a good strong signal. That's the idea here. Well, the telescope is similar, except instead of having an antenna suspended above the parabola, it's a small mirror. And it's this mirror's job, the secondary mirror, to reflect light from the primary mirror down into the sensors for the telescope. It's it's actually directing the collected light to the instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope itself. So it's a mirror that's pointing back. It's kind of selfie-like. It's pointing back at the telescope. Now, 12 days in, the telescope will begin wing deployment. Now, these wings aren't meant for flying. They're rather wings of the primary mirror. You might remember I mentioned that the primary mirror for the James Webb Space Telescope is made up of hexagonal panels, 18 of them. And those hexagonal panels mean that you can actually have these foldable segments of the telescope unfold, and connect together so that the edges of one hexagon line up with the edges of other hexagons. And collectively, the 18 hexagons make the primary mirror. This is different from the Hubble Space Telescope, which had an unbroken single piece as a mirror. So a very interesting approach here. Uh, Those panels, by the way, are incredibly reflective and very sensitive. Uh, they look amazing. You can see pictures and videos of them online. I highly recommend you check them out. They're gorgeous. So the first wing unfolds and joins the the central collection of hexagonal panels uh, 12 days in and 14 days in, the secondary wing will unfold and then you have the full primary mirror made up of all these hexagons. However, it won't be uh, actually focused yet. It'll just be in the main position where they're all kind of you know next to each other at 33 days the telescope will begin effectively field testing the instruments will come on and engineers will point the telescope to a crowded area of space you know some place that's got a lot of stars in it it's generating a good amount of light this is just to make sure that the telescope is in fact detecting light that the light is hitting the mirrors that's getting reflected and it's being picked up by the telescope's sensors So at this stage, the mirrors are not aligned properly to get super sharp images. It's really just to verify that everything is actually kind of working. Assuming it is, then around 44 days into the mission, the telescope will begin making fine adjustments to each of the mirrors, that have them line up to form the prime mirror. And the secondary mirror will also get fine-tuned adjustments in order to start to bring things into focus. And this is a a painstaking process. It's one that involves lots of motors that we'll talk about in a subsequent episode. But uh, just know that it's about a lot of tiny adjustments. It'll take actually about three months after the launch for the telescope to start returning images that are around the quality we would expect from it for the rest of its mission. It will, however, be about six months after launch before the telescope actually gets down to some serious work and starts to collect data we hope will tell us more about our universe. So what kind of stuff is it gonna be looking for? Well, part of that will be evidence of how the first galaxies formed billions of years ago to learn more about the evolution of the universe itself. We've got a lot of hypotheses about how the universe formed. This telescope is going to seek out information that will either lend support or maybe call into question those hypotheses. It will also look at dust clouds so that we can learn more about how stuff like stars and planets form over billions of years. Again, we got a lot of thoughts about this, and this telescope will help us gain a deeper understanding of cosmological events. And because the James Webb is relying on infrared light, that infrared light, it can penetrate stuff like dust clouds. So we'll be able to get better information about those formations in the universe. For a telescope like the Hubble, which primarily relied on visible light, we were really limited because the dust clouds appeared opaque to that kind of telescope but the James Webb will be able to see through and into these dust clouds, and we'll get a lot more information about them. So a lot about what the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be exploring will relate to questions about how massive celestial bodies form over time, from planets to suns to entire galaxies, and how they evolve. These are really big cosmological subjects, But the telescope will also come in handy when we start looking at various extrasolar planets, meaning planets outside of our own solar system. The telescope will give us more information about stuff like the atmosphere around distant planets. We've identified a lot of exoplanets that exist in in what we call the Goldilocks zone. That is, the planets exist in an orbit that's the right range of distance from their host star so that liquid water could potentially exist on those planets. Now, that doesn't actually mean that there is water on any of those planets, but rather that the planet should be at a temperature that is warm enough to have liquid water on it, but not so warm that liquid water would just evaporate off of it. The distance a planet should be from its host star is dependent upon stuff like the star's size and its age that tells you how far away a planet would need to be in order for liquid water to exist there. There are other elements as well, but that's getting into uh, a whole rabbit hole. Well, the James Webb Space Telescope should be able to tell us about whether planets like that have an atmosphere and what that atmosphere's composition should be. To do this, they'll use a couple of different things together. Uh, The transit method, which is where you're looking for the existence of planets by looking at uh, the dimming of light coming from a star that indicates that something has passed between the star and you. So if you detect this and it's happening at regular intervals, you can make the guess that there is an orbit. There's something in orbit around that star that's blocking a little bit of light at every given increment of time, however long it may be. And then we would also use uh, spectroscopy which is, uh, in practice, where you measure the intensity of light at different wavelengths of light. So by determining which wavelengths of light are more present, we can start to draw conclusions about stuff that might be in a planet's atmosphere. So we have to remember, that's light that's passing through that atmosphere from its host star. So you kind of take a fingerprint, a spectral fingerprint of that star's light. You say, this star is giving off light and these are the, the intensity of the different frequencies of light it's giving off. However, when the planet passes over the star, we start to detect little changes in that digital fingerprint. That to us would in- indicate things that are in that planet's atmosphere that could be absorbing those wavelengths of light. And thus we can say, hey, turns out We think there's oxygen on the atmosphere or in the atmosphere of this planet, which is really cool, right? Well, scientists will also use the telescope to study stuff that's in our own solar system, not just outside of it, like our good buddy Mars. Working in concert with orbiters and landers that are dedicated to studying Mars, the James Webb Space Telescope will help us get a better understanding of Mars's atmosphere, its weather patterns. It'll help us, you know, back up the information that's being found by these other instruments, and it will also study other bodies within our own solar system, not just Mars, but other planets as well. It's all really exciting stuff. In fact, exciting enough for me to choose to get a tattoo representing the mission of the telescope. So here's the story. Back in November 2016, NASA selected a group of artists to take part in a big art project inspired by the James Webb Space Telescope. Among those artists was a tattoo artist from Atlanta named Brandy Smart. So she pitched an idea. She would create 18 tattoos to represent those 18 mirrored panels for the primary mirror of the James Webb Space Telescope. Each tattoo would represent something that the James Webb Space Telescope would be looking for. And she started to search around for people who wanted to participate in her project. And I volunteered, and she took me up on it. So in 2016, I went to get my space tattoo from Brandy Smart, and I chose the image of a protostar. This image was actually caught by the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, obviously, I couldn't pick anything from the James Webb Space Telescope because it hadn't launched yet. So I like the idea of going with the protostar. That's a body that could continue to gain mass and develop and become a true star, or It might not, it might not gather enough mass. There might not be enough gas and particles and dust for it to gather enough to become a star. It could eventually just fizzle out. I feel like that speaks to me on a deep personal level, so that's what I chose. And we actually shot a video for the series I used to host years ago called Forward Thinking. And in that video, I was talking about the James Webb Space Telescope as well as showing me getting that tattoo. The video published in December 2016. At the time, the James Webb Space Telescope was aiming to launch in 2018, but clearly that just didn't happen. Anyway, the video title is Staring Into Space, and it's on the Forward Thinking channel, FW Thinking, if you're curious. The full collection of Brandy's project is viewable on the website JWST.nasa.gov/content/features/JWST-art. slash Yeah, that's um, that's how government websites work. Anyway, look for Brandy Smart's name if you look at that website. My tattoo is uh, in the hexagon that's just below the blank center spot in that group. So yeah, my skin is part of NASA's history, I guess, and it means I feel a special connection with this amazing piece of technology, particularly when it itches, and I'm itching to see it get to L2 and start capturing amazing images. So like I said, I'll probably do a follow-up episode where I'll dive into greater detail in the technology and instruments of the James Webb Space Telescope, how they work, and what sort of uh, way they will operate in order to bring this kind of information back to us and the kind of scientists who study this sort of stuff. But that will have to wait for the next episode or at least a future episode. I don't know that it'll be the next one, but we'll see. And in the meantime, if you have suggestions for things I should tackle in episodes of Tech Stuff, let me know, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is H S W, and I'll talk to you again really soon.